Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch on behalf of the OnScript hosting conglomerate, which is comprised of Drew Johnson and Matt Bates. I don't know why I called it a conglomerate, but it just seemed like the right word. It's probably not. Anyway, quick word before we start. Uh, we're going to be, Matt Bates and I in this episode are talking with Greg Boyd about his book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, yeah, about violence in the Old Testament huge topic. I get it all the time with my students, and it's something I'm actually writing about as well right now from a really different angle. And uh, also, yeah, oh yeah, I wanted to say there's a popular book that's going to be released soon. can't remember the title offhand, but it's a, it's a 200-page distillation of the 1,400-page volume that he, he sent to us to, to read and prep for the interview. Um, in the interview, Matt and I, we typically read, uh, and Drew, read all the books that we interview on. For this one, we were only able to read a mere four or 500 pages because mine got hung up in customs coming to the UK and then they, were, they had run out of their first print run for getting the book to Matt Bates. So we only got it like pretty soon before the interview and weren't able to get through the whole thing. So we're, we're still working through it, uh, which is kind of nice. It was in, in progress type of interview, you know, mid stop in our journey through it. Uh, also, special shout out to Ken Paget, who's been helping us with our visuals on our logo and the the Facebook banner and some other stuff. We really appreciate your help, Ken, and for volunteering that time. That was really kind of you. Uh, it, we're kind of entering a phase now with OnScript where people are engaging with us in different ways. We've got uh, a few supporters. We'd love to raise up an army of $2 a month supporters which can really help us push this forward in different ways. Um, a dream would be to have someone to help edit the episodes uh, because that takes up a lot of time and, and I'd rather invest that personally in, in reading for the interviews and doing other stuff related to the podcast. So if anyone has special talent in that and wants to get involved with us, please email me on scriptpodcast at gmail.com and we have a listener Q&A episode that's going to be released soon. We've already recorded that. But if you have questions that you want us to put in for the next episode, next time we do that, it might be a couple of months, but go ahead and email them to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com. All right, on to the episode. For many children, their earliest contact with the Bible was Noah's Ark that wonderfully big boat with all the cuddly animals. Not soon after, they might learn that Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. These are great kids' stories. But as teens and adults, many of us begin to ponder the fact that in the flood, everyone else drowned at God's behest and the awful fate of men, women, children, and animals put to the sword at God's command in Jericho and in the other cities. This is Matt Lynch here with Matthew Bates for the OnScript Podcast. With us today is Greg Boyd, someone who has wrestled with these and other violent texts in the Bible for a very long time. Greg, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Greg, you're the busy pastor of a large church. Could you talk briefly about the time and ways you devote to study? What does it look like in a typical week? When, how are you finding time to write in the midst of all this busyness? Uh, well... Um, it helps that uh, the way I, 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 I'm not a very typical senior pastor at all. I am the opposite of a hands-off pastor. 
Uh, I have one virtue, and that is that I know I'm not good at most things, and I don't like to waste time doing stuff that I'm not good at. Uh, I, so I basically communicate. Uh, I like to read, write, communicate. And so I, I'm a preacher. I cast the vision for the church. But I empower other people to run the thing, and, and so it allows me some space uh, to do other, other things like uh, pursue research and writing and stuff like that. It also helps that uh, I have always gotten by in four, four or five hours sleep. I, I, my wife sleeps about twice as much as me, so I have five hours every day that you know, are mine to just devote to reading and things like that. And so, yeah, it, I've uh, just carved out a, a kind of a niche where, um, you know, I, I, for a long while, was a professor as well as a pastor, and I finally had to, felt I had to quit the academy to become an academic because I just had no time in the academy to do the thing I love to do most, which is reading and writing and research. Uh, and so, um, uh, I, so I'm an academic pastor. You can think of it like that. Well, Greg, there's no doubt that you're a, a gifted communicator, and I think that shines in your book, uh, and I'm sure you're gifted behind the pulpit as well. Greg Boyd is a theologian and a pastor. He has authored or co-authored over 20 books, including Letters from a Skeptic and The Myth of a Christian Nation. He has been featured on the front page of the New York Times, CNN, National Public Radio, and the BBC. Greg holds a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary and an MDiv from Yale Divinity School. He was a professor of theology for 16 years at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Greg is the co-founder of Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he serves as senior pastor. Today, we are speaking with Greg about his new book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, Interpreting the Old Testament's Violent Portraits of God in Light of the Cross. Now, Greg, uh, you had intended to write quite a different book, but this book emerged instead. Can, can you explain what happened there? Sure. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I, um, well, I'll back up a little bit. Throughout the 90s and into the first part of this century, I, I just, I was getting clearer and clearer uh, about um, how central nonviolence is to uh, Jesus' revelation of God and to Jesus' kingdom ethics. And the clearer I got about who Jesus was and the revelation of God that he brought, uh, the foggier I got, the more problematic became the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. And, and I'd have increasingly people in my congregation asking questions as I was preaching more and more about nonviolence and peacemaking and loving your enemies and things like that. They would be asking, well, what about, what about uh, you know, wrathful God of the Old Testament? What about, you know, the Battle of Jericho and all those kind of things? And so I finally decided there was a point where I had to come to terms with this. And about 10 years ago, I was going to just take a summer off and, and just write a book um, that was intended to just bring all the best arguments I had collected over the years uh, at, that would justify God's behavior in the Old Testament. Um, and and uh, yeah, so I cut together all the violent portraits of God. There's over a thousand of them. And when you bring them all together and mass them all in one place, man, it's, it's quite an overwhelming experience. Uh, and then I had all my, my best arguments. And so I start writing this thing, and I got probably uh, 45, 50 pages into it, and I finally, I had to quit. And I had to quit because my arguments just were so weak. I was amazed at how, how lame they sounded. And I figured if they don't convince me, I can't expect them to convince anyone else. I just could not justify this. And what made it particularly problematic is that I, I had recently come to the conviction that all Scripture, the ultimate uh, telos or purpose of all Scripture is to point to Jesus, uh, and more particularly to point to Jesus on the cross. The cross I see as the quintessential revelation of everything he was about. 
Uh, and so the question isn't just how to justify or make a little look a little less monstrous, put the best spin on uh, God commanding his people to slaughter, you know, various you know, Canaanites in various regions of the land. Uh, the problem wasn't just to make God even look ethical. The, the challenge really is to show how these violent portraits of God, along with all other scripture, points to Jesus. Jesus says, all scripture is about me, John 5. How, how does it point to Jesus, and more particularly, how does it point to a self-sacrificial death on the cross? Uh, that I, I had to scrap that project and then start from, from scratch um, and, and just sat in that question for a, for, for a long while. And that set me off on a whole new trajectory uh, of, of research and study, which... Uh, it didn't take a summer. It took 10 summers. Uh, 10 years later, I finally got this book out. Well, we do want to uh, mention to our listeners that these, this is indeed an enormous project, uh, and it's multifaceted and, and a complex project. Uh, this is 1,400 pages uh, that's been recently issued by Fortress Press here. Uh, and, uh, and so this might be something that would be of service to us all. Uh, can, you, can you briefly sketch how the, two, the logic of the two volumes, how, do, how does the project flow together? Now, I, I realize that you could probably go into a lot of detail about the logic, but how about just the basic structure? Sure. Uh, well, it's, there's two volumes. Uh, volume one is the cruciform her hermeneutic. Um, and volume two is, is about the cruciform thesis. Now, the cruciform hermeneutic is just this. I, I, uh, I, it, it's about how to, read, how, to, how to read scripture through the lens of the cross. And I, I make the case that the cross is the center of everything Jesus was about, and all scripture is supposed to bear witness to the cross. And then I flesh out what does it mean to read all scripture through the lens of the cross. And then the cruciform thesis is volume two, and that's basically what I find when I read the violent uh, uh, portraits of God in the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. Uh, and, and there's four parts to that we can get into if you want later on, but that's kind of the logical flow of it. How, how do you read the Bible through, first of all, the necessity of reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, and then what does that look like, and then what results when you actually do that? And you've, you've mentioned the... Um... I mean, the subtitle of the book refers to the Old Testament. Did you, as you went through violent portraits of God in the Bible, also run into problems in the New Testament? Well, I, I have some appendices where I address those, um, but I, I don't devote uh, any substantial amount of, of, of energy into that, mainly because uh, most of the uh, portraits, maybe even all of the portraits of God in the New Testament that are allegedly violent, I think can be adequately accounted for on, a, on an exegetical basis. And there's a number of books that do that. Um, and so I refer to those books and don't want to just repeat what they did. And I just provide samplings in, the, in, in, in uh, several appendices on the book of Revelation and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so uh, for the most part, I focus on the Old Testament. Now, now one of the, um, one of the critiques that I'm sure you've probably heard a lot anytime you start rethinking violence in the Old Testament is is the old um, criticism of Marcionism, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, first of all, could could you maybe just outline what Marcionism is for our listeners who may not be familiar with that? We have referenced that in other episodes, but but some people may be new to that. Um, and then I have, have a follow-up question on that. Sure, yeah, well, um, Mar Marcion was a second century heretic who basically said that the Old Testament is not an authority for, for Christians. Uh, he happened to believe that it was inspired by a different God, an, uh, an evil God, uh, and that Jesus reveals the good God. So he had this complete polarity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he just threw it out. 
Um, and so the, that title gets applied to anybody who, throw, who, who feels they have the right to throw out the Old Testament, or at least portions of the Old Testament. I actually, uh, in one chapter, have a... Have a uh, there, there, there's two, two uh, alternatives that I play my own view off of. Uh, the one is what I call a dismissal solution, and that is, kind of follows in the pattern of Marcionite. And in that group, I, I, uh, I would put everybody who thinks that they have solved the problem of the Old Testament violent portraits of God by arguing that it never happened. And there's a number of scholars who do this, that they, they, they'll produce all these archaeological evidence that the conquest narrative didn't really happen the way that the Bible says it is. So that means it's fiction, and that means that the portrait of God commanding them to slaughter uh, Canaanites, that, that's a fiction, so don't worry about it. And I argue that that is not a viable option, um, at least for, for, for Christians who really take seriously uh, Jesus' endorsement of the Old Testament. I, if I confess him as Lord, and he clearly endorses all of this and refers to it as the Word of God, I feel obliged to do the same. Uh, I, if I call him Lord, I can't correct his theology. And so um, uh, e e whether or not a passage or a narrative corresponds to some scholarly reconstruction of actual history, um, to me, is irrelevant, at least when we're studying the Bible as God's Word. Uh, when we're studying as God's Word, you enter into the world of the narrative, and that is what I regard to be God-breathed. Yeah, and I and have to take all of that seriously. Yeah, and it doesn't solve a whole lot to say it doesn't happen, because then you're saying that the inspired authors um, want to portray God as if it had happened, which is, in a way, you know, could be even worse. Well, yeah, and, and you have a violent portrait of God there, and that's the problem. How it relates to actual history... That's interesting from a historical critical perspective, but uh, when we're reading the Bible as God's Word, I think we need to bracket out those historical critical uh, uh, issues to enter into the world of the text and read it in kind of a pre-critical manner. Hmm. So, so um, the early church historian Tertullian, who was, who was uh, debating with Marcion and, and critiquing him, and he wrote this multi-volume critique of, of Marcion, he said this in the first volume of his critique. He said, quote, A better God has been discovered, who never takes offense, is never angry, never inflicts punishment, who has prepared no fire in hell, no gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. He is purely and simply good. So then Tertullian goes on to critique Marcion for oversimplifying God's goodness. And then he says, You allow indeed that God is a judge, but at the same time destroy those operations and dispositions by which he discharges his judicial functions. So, so one of the questions I, I would love to hear you address is, what are, what are some of the potential hidden costs of destroying the violent God or getting rid of the violent God problem? Are there, are there any costs that you considered as you were thinking through how you were addressing this problem? Does it create problems over here? Sure, there's things I consider. Um, I don't regard them as valid, but, but one of the major things is that you find a widespread assumption all over the place that uh, if God does, even pacifists, a lot of pacifists argue this, that even though violence is forbidden for humans, uh, God has to, uh, God retains the right to act violently. And uh, because if, he, if, if we don't have a violent God, then, then uh, we, have, we have no justice. Uh, you know, sin is never atoned for. There's, there's never, um, you know, there's never judgment. Uh, I, I argue that when it comes to, thinking about how, how, how God judges, because I don't dispute that God judges, and the judges, judgments can be horrific. Um, the question is, how does God judge? And uh, when it comes to understanding how God judges, or how God loves, or how God anything, I 
submit that we have to always start with the cross. And on the cross, the cross is a revelation of God's judgment. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Um, well, that cup is the cup of God's wrath. You find it referred to dozens of times in the Old Testament. It's a metaphor of God's wrath. And so Jesus is aware that he's coming under the wrath of God. Uh, but the cross didn't involve any violence on God's part. Uh, the Father didn't lift a finger against Jesus. Um, he simply delivered him over to wicked humans who were operating under the principalities and powers. And all the violence and all the anger towards Jesus was carried out by agents other than God. Uh, and that, so there, that, that tells me how God judges. And then as I read the Old Testament, and I, I read it from that perspective, I can see all confirmations all over the place that the thing that God does when, he's, when he sees he has to allow people to come under judgment is he simply withdraws his protective presence and, and then allows them to uh, undergo the, the self-destructive consequences of sin, which is usually done at the hands of other, other agents. Yeah, I think we're going to probably circle back to that. Uh, at least we'll see how the interview goes. But I think we do have some questions that we want to probe uh, that idea of, um, of divine withdrawal and how that might connect to um, the, the whole thesis of your book. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit. And um, in this question, um, I was sort of thinking through uh, the strong claims you make toward a, a Christocentric reading of the Old Testament. Um, and you, you want to say that the, the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ in some way or another. And as we, as we begin to, that sounds nice, but as we begin to think about details there, um, for instance, just to take one random example, you know, how the story of Micah in the book of Judges, you know, he becomes a priest and serves an idol uh, on behalf of various tribes in Israel. Uh, how can we see uh, questions like that or, or portions of the scripture like that that seem quite obscure and are hard to connect to the Christ story? Uh, how do you connect those things to the Christ story if we want to see uh, that the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ? Well, Matthew, you're asking, a, that's a huge question. <laughs> Because uh, I, I, I would not claim that there's you know, like only one way that the Old Testament points to, to Jesus. I think there's a multiplicity of ways, and 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 uh, you know various exegetes interpreters have have multiplicity of of strategies for doing that. Um, uh, N.T. Wright, for example, in his, his book, uh, his great book, uh, The Day the Revolution Began, uh, his whole his whole thesis is about how the Old Testament points to to Jesus and is pointing to the cross. And he does it quite different than I do, um, but but he he just he's showing how the, the, this whole storyline of Israel uh, walking under God, then going into uh, disobeying and coming into exile, and then you know being exiled from his people, and then looking for a redeemer. Uh, it's the whole it's the whole trajectory of the storyline. Uh, and then with regard to every particular thing, you just ask the question: How does that particular story play into the to the whole story? Uh, and in that way, you know, contribute to uh, it pointing to uh, the uh, to Christ and how Christ fulfills the Old Testament, and and He is the new Israel. Uh, he's the new representative of God, and so there's it's it's actually very very complex. Um, all I'm doing in this book is trying to show one way that one portion of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, and more specifically to the crucified Christ. Um, and that I, I, I and I, I focus on that because I think that is the most challenging aspect of the Old Testament. Uh, how other portions point, well, we can flesh out, uh, but but I, I think it would be less problematic to show how they are Christocentric than it is to show how the genocidal portrait of God in the conquest narrative, for example, is is uh, uh, Christocentric. Yeah. Well, obviously, I'm not hostile to. Uh 
you know, a, Christ, a Christocentric reading of, of the Old Testament. I, I know that. I read your book. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I do think that um, that on the one hand, you're right. I think it does, in the basic sense, just connect to salvation history. But we also would want to say that uh, there's a larger pattern that it seems like the Old Testament is is narrating about uh, about both suffering and redemption that we would want to uh, that we would want to tap into as well. And, and you know, in the New Testament itself, as you know far better than I do, uh, but they have a variety of strategies, uh, if you can even call it strategies. Uh, and, and the way they find Christ in, uh, in the Old Testament, it was very creative. Um, and and, uh, and I, 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 I don't think we can just replicate all of their, their exegetical strategies, but they do set a precedent for, I guess, spiritual creativity as we're reading this, uh, to look at it through a different lens and uh, to not be st just stuck to sort of the original meaning of the text, uh, but to realize that these are inspired by God and so can take on meanings that the original authors never dreamed of. Uh, and you, you show that prospological logic, uh, a, a, a prospological exegesis, is one of those main strategies uh, that, that that Paul used, and you do it very well. And listeners should buy his book. Yep, that's right. Available right now on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk. Wow, thanks for the thanks for the plug, Greg. Yeah, we're supposed to be plugging your book, not vice versa. Here, I want some royalty checks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they'll be slender. Uh, Twenty-five cents. <laughs> Yes. So, Greg, this might be a good time to talk about another key part of your thesis, which is the idea that, that in the Old Testament, these violent portraits of God, you, you see them as human projections onto God, that, that humans project onto God the kind of God they want, which is a, a violent tribal deity, as you've put it in different places. Um, could you just briefly describe how you see that as cruciform? Because for a lot of people, that would just seem to be a case of misrepresentation. Sure, sure, good. So, so like those who advocate the dismissal solution, uh, um, they, would, they would agree that those are projections of God. Um, and they, they tell us a lot about the, the uh, people of Israel, uh, the way that they were viewing God at the time. Uh, and I agree with that. My contention is that, that we can't stop there. Because uh, if this is God-breathed, it has to somehow all be pointing towards uh, the revelation of God in Christ. What I find interesting then is, is this, is that when I, when I look at the cross, I, I have to go back to, you know, how does the cross reveal God? And, and this was really a turning point for me when I asked this question. Um, how does the cross reveal God? And it seems like I'd never heard that question asked, though once I asked it, it seemed like the most obvious question in the world to ask. How does this first century crucified Nazarene, how does that become the definitive revelation of God for us? And I noticed that it's not what we see with the natural eye on the surface of the cross. You know, Paul says we once considered Christ according to the flesh, according to the natural mind. Uh, to, to the natural eye, all you see is a God-forsaken criminal in a first century Palestinian context. Uh, and, and it's ugly. But what reveals God to us is the fact that God was willing to stoop down into that. God was willing to, you know, the, the all-holy creator was willing to stoop down and to, in some sense become our sin and to become our God-forsaken curse. And it's the distance that God crossed out of love for us that reveals the love of God for us. Uh, that's why the cross is the supreme revelation of God, because God could never cross a greater distance than he, than he crosses on the cross. <laughs> that's what he crosses in that sentence, but I hope it's, I hope it's clear. And, and, and so he, he steps in and takes on our ugliness. So the surface reveals the ugliness of our sin, the sin that God bears. But what reveals God is when we, by faith, look through that surface and see that God is stepping down into that. 
So also, since that's the God who breathed all the scripture, it seems to me that we shouldn't consider that a one-off event or an exceptional thing, that this should tell us something about how God is always revealing himself. And, and, uh, uh, and so when we come upon portraits of God that, that are ugly, and I mean by that, they don't have the character of God that's, that, that's reflected in Christ. Because uh, at the cross of the definitive revelation of God, we should take all our cues about what God's character is like from that. But what we, So these portraits, the, the surface of them doesn't tell us much about God. It tells us about the people that God was relating to. This is how they conceived of God. But what is revealing, what reveals God to us is when we, by faith, knowing who God really is, we look through the ugly surface, the sin-mirroring surface of those portraits, and we behold God doing the same thing he does on the cross. He was willing to step down and enter into solidarity with his people, uh, even though they had these sometimes horrendous ancient Near Eastern conceptions of him. And, and just as he does on the cross, he therefore takes on an appearance that reflects that, that, that sin-mirroring surface. He appears that reflects the ugliness of the sin that he's bearing. So, so um, you, you use the language there of, of God stooping down. Uh, so let's think about those violent texts in the Old Testament. God stoops down, allows humans to project onto him their violent fantasies. And in some sense, God is bearing that misrepresentation. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, so one of the questions I had there was the the idea of bearing sin, uh, when we use that in reference to the cross, has a very specific connotation of bearing away sin in the sense of forgiveness and and atoning for that sin. So, would you go as far as to say that with the Old Testament, that God allowing Himself to be misrepresented actually atones for that sin and bears it away, or is it more just an analogy? No, if you're using it in that specific sense, then I would say that I refer to these, these uh, the ugly portraits of God as, as harbingers of the cross. Or, or, uh, of, they, they point towards the cross, uh, which is the, the deed by which all sin is removed. Uh, the, the point I'm getting at is that God, there's a suffering that goes on there. Um, uh, in fact, you, know, you find this, this several times in the Old Testament where the Lord is saying, uh, uh, like in Isaiah, I think it's 42, I am weary of your sacrifices. I can bear them no more. Uh, you know, he, 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 for so long he's put up with these things, uh, but he's, he's, he, he suffers because of it. Um, John Golden Gate has a really good article on this, on, on the sin-bearing God of the Old Testament. And so there's, a, there's a, a, a suffering that he's willing to put up with because he's not, in my view, a coercive God. He doesn't just coerce people into having true ideas about him. Uh, he, that means he will influence people and reveal as much of his true self as he can. But there comes a point where he's got to accept people as they are. And at that point, then he, he's going to enter into solidarity with them. And there's a pain involved in that, um, a grief as, as he sees, you know, I can just imagine the grief of God as he and as his people see him as one who commands them to go out and exterminate populations. And, and the pain it must have caused God, since I know what, you know, I know that God's a weeping God when it comes to judgment, because Jesus reveals when he talks about the, the judgment of Jerusalem. Uh, there's, there's a weeping there, a wailing even, and, and that's the heart of God breaking as he sees the consequences of sin being played out. But he patiently stays in the game, moving his people ever inch by inch forward towards the truth. Well, thanks, Greg. I'm, I'm still uh, pondering your thesis, partly because I haven't been able to f- quite finish the books. I, I, hate to, I hate to have to admit this, but I always try to read all the books that I, that I interview for for on script. But apparently your book was selling so terrifically well 
uh, that Fortress is having trouble keeping it in stock. Uh, so kudos to you on that. Uh, <laughs> but as a consequence of that, uh, even though I requested the book uh, more more than a month ago, I just got my copy last week, and so I'm, yeah. I'm still assessing. Sorry about that. Sorry about oh, that. Oh, that's okay. Uh, but in, in light of that... I'm glad to have the problem. I'm glad to have the problem, but... Um, but uh, that, that is to preface my question, because it's a little more critical question, and I'm still sort of thinking things through. Uh, as you make some pretty strong claims here, I'm going to read one from uh, page 227 uh, that you make, and I want to probe it a little bit. Uh, here's what you say. You say that Jesus is the center and circumference of the Bible, while the cross is the center and circumference of Jesus. Now, here's the part I'm particularly concerned about. It may be that perhaps you might overprivilege the cross here. Uh, and I might argue, and in fact, I have argued this uh, in uh, various places, uh, that, uh, that, for instance, for Paul, his Old Testament hermeneutic was not just centered on the cross, but on the kerygma more broadly. Uh, and we would understand the kerygma to be, you know, essentially an announcement of Jesus's mission, that he would preexist with the Father and was sent, you know, that he came into the line of David, uh, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That would be the cross part. But then he was buried, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, you know, be seen by witnesses, and then seated at the right hand of God, and he'll return. Now, uh, what about, if we were to think more about, like, uh, I guess, the, the broader um, narrative of Jesus and the whole apostolic preaching, the whole kerygma, uh, why not make the case that, for instance, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God uh, is, the, is the quintessential revelation uh, that tells us who God is? That would give us a very different narrative than if we put the cross at the center, uh, than if we were to put, let's say, uh, Jesus' session at the right hand at the center. Um, so how do you respond to that charge uh, in the sense of defend, how would you defend your cruciform specifically, hermeneutic, more exactly? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I've got four chapters on that um, in, in volume one, and I can't repeat all that here, but uh, I do argue that. Well, I, the, the, a crucial point is this, that when I talk about the cross being the center, I do not mean the cross as opposed to uh, the life and ministry leading up to the cross, or as opposed to the resurrection and the ascension after the cross. I, I have a large section there, and I hear I lean quite a bit on Thomas Torrance, who has, who has argued this, I think, very well, that, that uh, the cross is the summation, the culminating point of, of the whole trajectory from the incarnation to the ascension. And it's the through line. Uh, it, it's, it's the thing that weaves it all together, the thematic center of the whole thing. Um, and, and so to say that the cross is the center is not at all to say that that uh, to exclude anything else. It's just to say, I, I make the case that the self-sacrificial -sacri self love of God that is revealed on Calvary is the thematic thread that weaves everything together. Uh, I think that's why Paul could say that, you know, the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, he also, of course, believed in the resurrection and everything else, but the resurrection is the, the, the declaration of the victory of the self-sacrificial love of God. And so, uh, I, I stand by, I, I, when I read your book, I totally agreed with everything about the kerygma and all that. I just am more explicit, and maybe even in disagreement with you, I don't know, but that the cross is the center of that kerygma. It, it, it reveals the, it's the quintessential revelation of the character of God, and then therefore the character of the kingdom, and the character of the kerygma, and the character of the Christian life, and the character of the gospel that we're to be proclaiming. Well, you do make a powerful case, and as I as I said, I'm still going to have to ponder it, um, uh, and so we'll have to we'll have to leave it at that for now. Uh, but uh, but uh, but certainly, you have four weighty chapters that I need to chew on for a while before I before I jump to any rash conclusions one way or the other. You're now, kind of in the same position of King Agrippa when he says to Paul, "Almost persuade us thou me." <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> 
Yes. Uh, so, uh, Matt, do you want to uh, kick off a speed round yeah. here to change the pace a little bit here? Yeah, Greg, um, we're gonna, we'd are gonna. like to do a speed round with you, and our request is that you take no more than 20 seconds to answer each question. That should give you enough time <laughs> to answer some really uh, difficult right. theological questions. Um, okay, great. And then these will be quoted uh, as your primary view on, on these issues. So, okay. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so uh, first question, what's the theological question you're most often asked as a pastor? Uh, why did this happen? Or where was God? What's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last 50 years not authored by you? What's the most important one? Uh, the most important? Theology or biblical studies book, yes. The singular one? Yep. Uh, it must be uh, Matthew Bates' oh, Prosthological Oh, come on. <laughs> okay. We're going to have yeah, to change yeah. that question. Okay, so let, that, let, that, that can't let's be go Karl Barth's Dogmatic. Okay, Karl, Karl Barth's Dogmatics. Dogmatics. Yeah, that's a few books, but yeah, got, I get your point. Yeah, yeah, okay, what, um, one, yeah. what's something you find embarrassing? Uh, what's, what do I find embarrassing? Uh, being... Mm, uh, uh, Donald Trump. I'm sorry. I <laughs> just came out. Uh, what's your favorite uh, beer? What's called? It was up until very recently Stella's, but it, now it's uh, uh, Surly Hell. Okay. Um, Surly Hell. But all right. I've got, given the speed. At, interesting for a theologian. Given the speed at which you can speak, do you ever get people intentionally skipping church so that they can listen to your sermons on 50% speed at home? I, I, I suspect that that's probably going on more than I realize. Yes. I, I work so hard at trying to slow down my talk. I had 12 years of speech therapy to talk this slow. Okay. So <laughs> All right, we should I, be honestly, thankful. I did. Okay. So were you uh, disappointed that the crucifixion of the warrior God was not longer than N.T. Wright's Paul and the Faithfulness of God? I, I felt so cheated. I was trying to outdo him, and I mm. just fell a little bit short. So I, 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 I'll have another go around sometime in the future. Yeah, maybe um, you could do a, a sort of new intro to the the one year anniversary book, and and add a, a you know big long preface. <laughs> that, 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 there you go. Okay. All right. All right, Greg. That was that was the easy speed round. Just wait. We're gonna have a harder one for you later. That was just a okay. warm up for you. I, I gotta apologize. I try to stay out of politics, and, and I don't not to weigh in on that. But uh, you caught me there, and I just that's uh, the first thing well, that came. That's, that's the point of the speed round is to, you know, to put you in an awkward place and see what you do. Now, uh, Greg, Greg, here, we'll put you in another awkward place. Well, not really, but you're an open theist, uh, and some people are going to know what that is, some people not. Um, but uh, you might explain briefly what that is, and I, I'm curious, uh, how do you see that informing your overall project? Well, it, open theism, and I don't really like that term, uh, but it's the, the view that the future is partly comprised of possibilities. Uh, if God created us free agents, we have the ability to choose to go this way or that way. And so it's possible that we'll go this way or that way. And that's the final thing to be said about it. And since God knows all of reality exactly as it is, he knows possibilities of possibilities. So God knows the future partly as, as, as a realm of possibilities, as a maybe. Uh, it's not all pre-settled, even in God's mind. Now, it, so that... You, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, would you favor a middle knowledge view then? No, I, I, I think the, the Molinist... I would... Except I think the classical Molinism, which is the view that has middle knowledge, uh, they, they overlooked one category of propositions that an omniscient God must know. Um, they, they thought all propositions about the future could be classified as the, either it will or will not happen. Um, they overlooked the, the, the propositions that express what might and might not happen. Because if something might and might not happen, then it's false that it will and also false that it will not. It simply might or might not. And they never considered that those, those propositions 
uh, as, as possibly being God creating a world in which those are true. And so uh, I've, I've sometimes called the open view a neo-Molinist view. It, it's Molinist in the sense that it's willing to grant that God has counterfactual knowledge, but it just wants to include this category of propositions. And we probably just lost some of your audience, so we probably... Uh, no, that's, that's wonderful. I, I think a lot of our audience will be tracking with you there. What do you think is the most damaging evidence against deterministic theology? And then this may actually feed right into uh, how, this, how the, the whole question of open theism fits into your larger theological project. The, the, the biggest argument against uh, uh, theological determinism? I, I, I think it's, I, if I had to choose, I'd say this, that uh, you're going to live as though that's not true. Uh, there's no way you can deliberate about any decision and, and not manifest the conviction that it's up for you to decide and that it's merely possible until you choose it. So you're going to live like an open theist, uh, uh, regardless of what you believe, because there's no other way to live. And, and, and you, one could argue that a belief system that you cannot illustrate uh, by how you act uh, is, is not a uh, genuine belief system. Um, Charles Pierce ar argued this, that, that a genuine belief has to be exemplifiable in your life behavior, and you can't exemplify determinism. Do you want to comment on how, how this, uh, this view uh, uh, unfolds in your project, I think especially in the second volume? Yes, uh, well, throughout, I, I, I think that the, everything I say in the, the uh, crucifixion of the warrior God could be affirmed by any Arminian. Um, I, I just don't know if they can do it consistently. And that's where the, the debate between open theism and Arminian, Arminianism comes in. But the whole thesis is predicated on a God who, who will not uh, uh, coerce people into believing true things, which is why we see a progress of revelation. God has to be, struggle uh, to get his people on board with things. And it puts a high emphasis on free will and on, on the um, uh, you know, decisions that other creatures make. Uh, it, it strongly emphasizes that God is not the one who is behind the violence. Uh, it's always other agents, whether angelic or human, that are bringing about the violence that are, that's involved in any of God's judgments. And so, yeah, it, it places a strong emphasis on that. I, I don't think one would have to be an open theist to, to uh, agree with it, uh, though because I'm an open theist, I think that's the most consistent view uh, that that uh, works out from this, Greg. Uh, regarding the subtitle or your your subthesis, sorry, of redemptive withdrawal, um, how does the idea that God withdraws not make God complicit in violence, uh, in as much as He allows violence when He could have otherwise maintained His protective blessing? Sure, sure. Uh, here, everything depends on on how you construe the withdrawal. Uh, Clearly, if, if I have a rabid pit bull in, in, on a leash here, and I know that this rabid pit bull it will bite you if I let it go, and then I nevertheless let it, let it go, then I'm responsible for, for the bite that, that you just received from my pit bull. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, a pit bull should be legal in the first place. Well, I would agree with you on that. But uh, all the pit bull lovers out there now just got mad at us. Uh, the, the, the better way to construe it is, is, is like this. Um, I, to give an illustration, there's a couple in my congregation several years ago who had a 24-year-old son, and this son was uh, into drugs and drinking all the time and didn't hold a job, and he was staying at home, and they were providing for him. And they finally got to the point where they had to turn him out. Uh, uh, all of the nice encouragement in the world wasn't working. He wasn't taking responsibility for his life, and, and the only way he was going to is for them to let him go. And that mean, meant watching him fall and, and get destitute and refuse to take him back in even though things were getting rough. Um, it's tough love. Uh, folks who have had to deal with, with drug-addicted loved ones have, have often come to that point where you have to withdraw your support and let them fall. 
And that's the analogy I would use where, where, where God is at. Uh, I think God, you know, all sin is a matter of pushing God away. And, it, and since God is, is the source of all life, sin is a choice of death uh, intrinsically. And I make a big case for that in volume two. Um, God, God will stay in the game. In his mercy, he protects us from the consequences of our sin as long as possible. But there can come a point where he's just enabling us and we're getting more and more solidified in our sin. And it's at that point where I, I think God has no choice but to withdraw and now let us suffer the consequences of our own decisions. Uh, and I think that's how all, all judgment works. And that's what we see illustrated on the cross. As the Father delivers Jesus over uh, to wicked humans uh, operating under fallen principalities and powers to do what they want to do. Now, God doesn't make them do that. Uh, they, you know, there's this phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these agents who are bent on violence or bent on destruction. They already were bent on destruction. Now God's just going to let them do what they want to do. Uh, but it's because I, I don't think he has any other choice. So I don't think he's morally culpable for it. Hmm. And, and is that where you would uh, also kind of locate the final judgment, that that's a, a kind of divine withdrawal that allows sin to do its work on people? I, I, I make that case in volume two as well, that it's, uh, I don't like the term annihilationism because it makes it sound like God has to annihilate people. Like he's got a zapper gun. Uh, God's the one who holds everyone in existence and, and for him to let people go is just to withdraw his, his supporting in existence. And that I think is letting sin run its self-destructive course. James puts it like this, that you know, temptation becomes, when it's fully grown, becomes sin and sin it gives birth to death. And it's just, it's a natural, organic thing. It's not a judicial thing that God imposes. It's something that grows naturally. The wages of sin is death. It just brings that about. All right, all right, Greg, thank you so much for that. Uh, are you ready for a second speed round then? Oh, joy. <laughs> You're locked in a gymnasium for 24 hours with 24 teenagers. You are responsible for entertaining them. So you do what? Oh, I freak out. I totally would freak out. I've done youth camps, and I freak out there, and I have time to prepare, so yeah, I freak out. Not which would you agree with the most, but which would you prefer to read? So you got six theologians to choose from. You're going to choose Irenaeus, Origen, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, or Bart? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Bart there. I, I, I think I'd go with Bart, but Origen is a close second. Oh, I love Origen. Are you willing to sing a song for us on the spot? Nope. <laughs> how, the how, scariest thing how about a song about origin <laughs> uh, no thank you the scariest thing about growing older is oh man wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'd say nose hairs and ear hair oh my god it's terrible <laughs> if you were offered a space <laughs> if you were offered a space flight to the moon and back would you do it for free yeah oh, that'd be a blast I mean, if it was reasonable, if I had reason to think that the thing was half safe, you know, but yeah, that'd be yeah. an adventure. Yeah. All right. So if you're at my house for dinner, the one thing you're hoping that I don't serve is? Meat. Meat. You're I don't a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. Okay. Or at least I okay. hope you have something that's, that can fill me up that's not meat. Well, if I come to your house, I wanted you to serve me a steak. So we have a conflict here. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that could be a problem. No, I, I, I would serve you a steak. I just, I, I just wouldn't eat it. That's, that's fine. Um, all right, and so uh, if you were to complete a Ph.D. outside the field of theology or biblical studies or history, what other field would it be in? Drumming. Percussion. Can you, 
Can you get I, a PhD in that? Uh, I'm sure you can. I, that yeah, you guy, probably I, can. I, I was going to be a, uh, I started as a music major at the U of M, uh, a jazz drummer. And I thought All that's right. going to be the rest of my life until God upset those plans. Do you, do you play in a worship band at church? No, but I play in a rock and roll band in bars. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So yeah, yeah we, we, we raise money for Haiti. But uh, yeah, we, we, we club. It's a lot of fun. And it gives you your, an, uh, plenty of opportunity to drink Stella. That's it. Or certainly <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks. You did well. All right. Greg, uh, how do you hope that this book changes the practices of the church? Um, I, I, the, the, main, the main thing I want to, the main thing that drives this is uh, really a pastoral thing. Um, I just have seen in my own life and in the life of many, many, many congregants, the difference that it makes when a person really believes that God is beautiful altogether beautiful and trust that God is beautiful. Uh, it, it, they fall in love with God. They're motivated no longer by fear, but by love. Uh, they find, they overflow with the love towards other people. They're transformed. You know, whatever picture of God we have, we start to be, we, we, we start to become. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians 3. You know, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so, uh, I, I, I so want to help liberate people to believe in, that God is altogether beautiful. And, and um, that would mean then uh, tr- helping train people to uh, re- read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross and see how these violent portraits of God, they don't compromise the beauty of God, they bear witness to it. They, they, they point to that very same beauty. Um, and, you see, and we do this instinctively with a bunch of other things. You know, we instinctively... It, we all read the Bible through a lens, and there's things we instinctively take literal and then take figurative and, and you know, whatnot. Um, you know, in the classical theological tradition, every, every time it says that God changed his mind or that God, you know, came down or God move, was moved or whatever, they instinctively interpret that as, you know, being anthropomorphic or, or, or whatever. But we just haven't done that with the violent text of the Old Testament. Now, in the early church, a lot of folks were doing that. Origen and Gregory and Nyssa. They, they would look at these violent portraits of God, and they thought this can't be literal uh, because it would contradict what we know is true about God in, 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 through Christ. And so they then interpreted it differently, and instinctively so. It, it, you read Origen's stuff, and he's, it, it was as natural for him to see this as allegories and, and whatever as it was to uh, you know, read the resurrection as literal. But we, that got lost in, in the 4th and 5th century. That way of interpreting the Bible was just shut down. And the reason is because the church inherited all this power from Constantine and began to share responsibilities for running the empire. And uh, you can't run the empire unless you're willing to use violence to defend its borders and to keep law and order within the borders. And so the church had to acclimate to violence. Um, and, and now those violent portraits of God, far from being a problem that needed to be solved, they became advantageous. Because we, it's very hard to justify, you know, to motivate troops to go out and kill the enemies that you need to kill uh, by appealing to the ministry of Jesus. But if you just jump over Jesus and grab onto these violent portraits of God, well, now you can go out and let's, let's slaughter the, God's enemies the way Joshua did. And, and unfortunately, that's the main role that these portraits have played throughout history, including uh, with the, the, the conquest of America. It was all done under the, kind of the, the conquest narrative rubric. Preachers would even liken the Native Americans to the Canaanites, and we're the, the, the new Israel, and so we have a divine right to slaughter them. And uh, I, I just think it's time that we revisit that, that issue. Uh, the, 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 these violent portraits of God have done enough damage 
Uh, let's go back to the early church and see what we can learn about a different way of looking at them. As a follow-up to that, if a, if a pastor was to go to your two volumes and be looking for inspiration for a homily or a sermon, um, is there a specific part you would hope that they would go to in your book that you would say, this is the part that I would really hope that you could latch on to because I think you're going to find something that is important to convey? Well, it, it, it would depend on where they're at on other things. Like if, if, a, if, a, uh, if a pastor was already convinced that uh, that you shouldn't read the Bible as a flat book. It's a story, and it develops, and it culminates in Christ. If they already had that down, and they had already had down the centrality of the cross, then I'd say, well, go to chapter 11, where I developed this cruciform hermeneutic. Uh, that's where I really start to flesh out what it looks like to read Scripture through the lens of the cross. But see, if, they are, if they're not yet solid on, on how to read the Bible as a story that culminates in Christ— and they're not yet solid on the cross, I'd first have them go there, because if they don't get that down, and that's why I spend four chapters you know, laying this foundation, unless the person's really convinced of that, nothing else is going to be compelling. Uh, it's only if you're really, you'll only entertain the possibility of reading these portraits through a very different lens if you're fully convinced that God looks like Jesus Christ uh, dying on the cross for us while we were yet enemies. Uh, and, and if you're fully convinced that all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, if you're not convinced that it's all inspired by God, well, then you'll just be okay saying, well, it didn't happen. I don't have to worry about it. But if you feel bound to the text, and yet you feel bound to, to, uh, the, to trust that God looks like he's revealed to be on the cross, that's what creates the conundrum that the cruciform thesis is, is, a, is an answer to. Greg, as you've, um, you've spent the last 10 years working hard on this book and which is a lot of time to spend with with a book about violence what what's been the effect on you in terms of sitting with violent texts for that long has it been a a great experience because you found uh an ability to focus on the crucified uh, christ or has it been uh, do you find it a kind of depressing experience no 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 it's been uh, a wild and fun and liberating adventure. I, I, the, the process of discovery, I mean, I, I feel like I got a PhD in the ancient Near East because I, I, I had to read all these ancient Eastern texts and, and, and just comparing that with the Bible and, and showing the cultural conditioning of the biblical authors. And, and, and I, you know, I, I would go to these texts and, and it was all like a big experiment where I'd, I, I would say to you know, the, the, the surface, uh, since it conflicts with what I, I know about God in Christ, that that tells me about God's people. And so I have to, by faith, look and, and uh, you know, see God stooping to bear the sin of his people, uh, that God wasn't the one who acted violently here. It's his people who put that on God. And then as I started reading the Bible that way, I would find confirmations in the text themselves that confirm that, in fact, God didn't do the violence that's ascribed to him. And that, so that was just so liberating. And to just have, and I've had already, the book's only been out two months, but I've had a number of people telling me this, that it is such a burden to have that lift, lifted off of you. Uh, it, you don't have to believe that God ever s- told his people to slaughter you know, every man, woman, child, but you can keep the virgins for yourself if you find them attractive. You know, it's, it's, like a lady came up to me uh, two weeks ago, and, and, and she was saying, um, she goes, I always felt like I, I could never fully give my heart to God because it's like, it's like dating a guy who's, who looks like the, they'd be the most wonderful husband in the world. Uh, that's Jesus. But it, it'd be like dating that guy and then finding out that sometime in the past he killed a schoolroom full of children. 
I, I could never fully trust a guy who ever could have done that. So also, yeah, I love what I see in Jesus, but to know that he had told people to slaughter every man, woman, child, and, and all the other atrocious things, some of the heinous things that go on there. Um, she said, I, I, I just never could fully invest. But then she starts crying and she tells me, I don't, I, I don't have to believe that anymore. It's just a burden that's relieved. And then you can give yourself permission to believe that God is as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross. Otherwise, there's this lurking suspicion. Yeah, what about, what about, what about? And that just pollutes our, our, our picture of God. So it, it's been a wonderful experience. I, I, I've loved it. I mean, it's, it's been taxing sometimes, but, but, but wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Greg. This has really been splendid. I, I think that you've done a beautiful job outlining your vision of the beautiful God. Uh, and uh, you're to be heartily congratulated on uh, these, these two volumes that are a very serious contribution, I think, um, to the ongoing discipline of theology. I think that there's going to be lots of people uh, oh, wrestling with that. your book. Yeah, no, it's a significant contribution. Um, and uh, we really certainly enjoyed the conversation here uh, and have appreciated you uh, coming on, on script with us. Uh, and we certainly recommend uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God to our audience. It's a, it's a highly provocative book. It's very interesting. Uh, and it's a very thorough case uh, that has been uh, put forward here by Greg. Uh, is, can, can I close with one, one little, uh, little uh, advertisement sure. here? Because uh, you asked a question about how you advise pastors, and I, I missed an opportunity there. Um, but uh, we're, we're going to be hosting a conference at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, my own ministry, it's called Renew ministries with a k r-e-k-n-e-w and we're, we're hosting at woodland hills church a conference on uh this this topic uh it's gonna be called cross vision because uh, i have a popular version of this book coming out in august that'll be called cross version and that's a mere 200 pages so it's it's for lay people but we'll have a, a conference on september 21st to the 23rd uh, and we'll be talking about like what what are the implications of this for children's ministry for example or for for uh for peacemaking uh, Rachel Held Evans will be joining us, and we're going to be talking about her journey uh, from a violent God to a nonviolent God and what the, how that's impacted her reading of the Bible. And so um, I encourage folks to check out that. Uh, you can just go to uh, renew.org, R E K N E W.org, and find out more about that conference. I think you said it, September 21st to 23rd is, is yes. what Greg mentioned there. It'll be a Thursday night, Thursday, Saturday morning. Okay. Uh, I'm going to sign off here. This is Matthew Bates and Matthew Lynch for On Script. We've been speaking with theologian Greg Boyd about his recent release, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, published in two attractive and very large volumes by Fortress Press. As always, there is a link on our website, onscript.study, to facilitate purchases. Take the time to tell us how much you love us by sharing OnScript on Facebook or Twitter. Leave a review on iTunes. Until next time. Hey, thanks for having me. God bless. Thanks a lot, Greg. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.